Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The interview of the morning. We've been we're, we're delighted to be joined by the former UK Prime Minister. He is Tony Blair, who opposes Brexit and, of course, has campaigned for a second referendum. Uh, Mr. Tony Blair, thank you for joining Surveillance once again. What is the chance now of a No Deal? Is it 50-50? I think the chances of a no deal are, are very small, actually, because really what's happened in the, in the past few days is that Parliament, in a sense, has taken charge of this process. And there was a defeat for the government the other night, which effectively means that Parliament now has the right to go through all the different options on Brexit. So I think what will happen is it's highly unlikely that her deal will pass because it's being attacked on many different fronts by many different groups. But then I think Parliament will go through what are all the potential alternatives, and that will include, obviously, the possibility that if Parliament can't reach an agreement, if there's a blockage, essentially, in Parliament, then we go back to the people in order for the issue to be resolved and resolved finally. So, um, But I don't think there's a majority in Parliament for no deal. I think, on the contrary, there's a big majority in Parliament against no deal. The question is, is there another deal if her deal fails? And then if you can't get agreement for anything, go back to the people. All right. Have you spoken, Mr. Blair, to the Prime Minister recently about how to handle Brexit? No, I'm afraid this is a, a situation in which Although I have immense sympathy for the difficulty of her, her position, by the way, and I, you know, having done the job, I know how hard it is. And she's been dealt a very, very difficult hand. Um, but I'm afraid we're just in fundamental disagreement with this. She, she believes the important thing is to do Brexit, even if we still remain tied to Europe's rules. In my view, if we do that type of Brexit, it's effectively pointless. And the people who support Brexit don't like it, and the people like me who want to remain in the European Union don't like it either. And the trouble is, all the way through this negotiation, you either, to minimise economic damage as a result of Brexit, because we've been four and a half decades in the European Union, we built up investment and commercial and trading relationships there, you either stay close to Europe's rules to minimise yeah. economic damage, but in which case, in a way, you've got the pointless Brexit, or you break out of those rules, in which case there will be economic damage, and that's the painful Brexit. So this is the, this is the dilemma at the heart of the negotiation. And I think there's such disagreement now about what form Brexit should take. Really, the only way you can resolve this, and we've had 30 months of negotiation, is to go back and ask the people, come on, what, what do you really think now? Do we carry on with Brexit? And if we do, then it's yeah. going to be you know, the hard Brexit that the true Brexit people want, or do you remain in the European Union? And Tony Blair, you've asked for a second referendum for quite some time, and it's definitely gathering momentum. But talk me through about what strategy you're now employing to try and get that through. So there's a vote next Tuesday. Um, it's almost impossible for the prime minister to get it through. Do you attach to that vote a second referendum, or does it come later? And what's the timeline for a possible second referendum? There's all sorts of various procedural ways you can get to the vote. But I think the political reality is people 
will only go for a second referendum if it's clear Parliament can't agree what should happen in respect to Brexit. And I think, therefore, what will happen is that her deal will be put. If her deal cannot succeed, then I think there may well be other types of Brexit that could be put forward. You could have either a closer relationship with Europe or a less close relationship. I personally think all of those will fail as well. And then it's really at the point at which it's clear Parliament can't agree that you go back to the people as the only way of, of resolution. Mr. Blair, wonderful to speak to you from America. I'm a confused American over Brexit. And of course, we've just seen here the passing of the 41st president. There's an existential crisis in the Republican Party in America, and I would respectfully suggest an existential crisis in the Labor Party of the United Kingdom. You need a Clement Attlee win of 1945. Is this vote December 11th the opportunity for your Labor Party to get its act together? Um, well, I think it's highly unlikely that in the event of the Prime Minister being defeated on Brexit, that you end up with a general election. You know, I think this, for the Conservative Party to risk a general election with Brexit as an issue in that election, would risk them rerunning the problem they had last year when they called the snap election, expected to win by a large majority, and then lost their majority altogether. So my, my best guess is actually, Tom, that what happens is that even though, of course, the Labour Party would like to have a, um, a general election, I think the Labour leadership's attempt to do so is most likely to be voted down. So you would have a situation where the Prime Minister's deal fails, you have an attempt to pass a motion of no confidence. I would be surprised if that succeeded. And then I think you get into a much more vigorous debate about yes. well, how do you resolve this Brexit issue. Because remember, if we don't resolve it, <clears throat> come the end of March 2019, we go out of the European Union. But can this be an opportunity for the United Kingdom to find some new middle ground in its politics? We're having the same discussion in America in that this raging Brexit debate and the polarities and fracturing of the Conservative Party, the Tories, fine. Is it an opportunity for your nation to find a new middle ground? Right, so what you've got in the UK today is you've got a Conservative Party that's deeply split over Brexit, which is, in a sense, a, a debate about national identity. And then you've got a Labour Party, I'm afraid, that is also very divided at the moment between what, if you like, is a leadership that's moved very far to the left, and then, you know, those that stand more, in, frankly, in my tradition within the Labour Party, that we've become much more centrist. So I think whilst Brexit's being resolved, all those bigger political issues, what happens to the future of British politics, I think those will be, as it were, on the back burner, yeah. whilst Brexit is the issue that gets decided. But I think the moment Brexit's out of the way, there will be a pretty vigorous debate mm. about where does British politics go. Um, Tony Blair, can I go back to the second referendum that you've been pushing for? First of all, do you have any private polling? Um, and what does it show support for Remain? What does that polling show? And what question would you put in that referendum? So it, it does show um, support for Remain, but I think you have to say it's still very, very contested within the, the opinions of the British people, so there's still a great division about it. The thing that's interesting, though, is that the people 
who voted for Brexit and were most ardently in favour of Brexit, they're not really in favour of, of the British Prime Minister's deal. They think that's much too soft. They're in favour of a much tougher, harder Brexit. So you've got that division within the British people. As for the question in the referendum, I mean, this is, a, again, a big debate. What question do you ask? But I think, in the end, the British people, they want either to have a proper Brexit or they want to stay. I don't think there's really support amongst the British people for a half-in, half-out solution. Because the problem with that is, as I say, it leaves you tied to Europe's rules, but still, um, you know, therefore, un as a result of being tied to the rules, you're unable to do the things the Brexiteers say they want to do. But you're out of the European Union decision-making apparatus. So I think the weirdest thing would be to end up in a situation where we still remain anchored in Europe's rules in some way, in a customs union and partially in a single market, mm -hmm. but we've lost our say over those. That's why I think in the end, the question probably has got to address the two propositions that overwhelmingly have most support amongst the British people, which is a clear stay or a clear leave. How many people in the cabinet do you think support a second referendum? At the moment, the cabinet would be against the second referendum. Um, but here's the problem, and it's one of the reasons why, for example, I completely understand from a business point of view, many business people say to me, look, Theresa May's deal, okay, is not a very good deal, but it's the only deal we've got. At least it settles the situation. Let's just go with it. And the point you raised about the cabinet is very apposite in this sense. The truth is, this deal won't really settle anything because some members of the cabinet don't really agree with the deal, but just believe tactically it's better to get Britain out of the European Union post-March 2019 and then carry on the debate, whereas other members of the cabinet would genuinely support her deal. So the problem, in a way, is that even within the cabinet, there isn't really cohesion or agreement as to what the future holds. And that's why I think that you will continue over the next couple of weeks or so, maybe slightly longer than that, to get a sort of debate around which version of Brexit should prevail. Yeah. But my instinct is that when each of these versions is put before the House of Commons, none will actually command the majority because there'll be enough votes against each one of them to create this blockage. And therefore, even if the cabinet at the moment is saying, no, no, we don't want another referendum, if you end up with this stalemate, this gridlock in Parliament, it really does become the only sensible way of resolving this. Mr. Blair, one final question, if I may. And of course, we know the fans at your Newcastle United can be upset from time to time. We have a modest upset within the Bank of England. This essay, Mr. Blair, from Governor King was extraordinary for Bloomberg two days ago, three days ago. If the United Kingdom Parliament supports Prime Minister May's plan, it will never be forgiven. More the result of incompetence of a high order Governor King goes on to say, the worst of all worlds, not facing an economic crisis, the nation is confronting a deep political crisis. And then he quotes uh, the poet from Wales, vassal states do not go gently into that good night, they rage. Will we see a rage in the United Kingdom and what will be the character of it if Brexit goes through? 
Well, I think what Governor King's done is put his finger on the problem, which is the risk of Theresa May's deal is that it really satisfies no one. And therefore, this is one of the reasons why I think you've got to go back to the people, because her deal is this kind of halfway house. But if it doesn't satisfy the people who most vigorously campaign for leave, and it doesn't satisfy the people like me who want to remain, then, and by the way, when you look at the detail as Governor King's doing, it's not really a very good deal, then yes, your risk is that rather than settling this issue and calming everyone down, you just have a great sense in the country that, that this thing hasn't been properly resolved and both sides remain angry. This is why I think, you know, when, even though it sounds improbable, the only way actually of reuniting the country is to say, look, we've had 30 months of negotiation, our knowledge of this issue is vastly enlarged. Parliament can't reach an agreement. So let's go back, and we go back on the basis that each side, remain and leave, say, OK, this is it. Um, this will determine it. Uh, if there is even a narrow vote one way or another, that's it for a generation. But both sides can make their case, and make their case with the knowledge of what has happened in the negotiation, and without this deal, which comes from a good place. I mean, let me say this to you. The Prime Minister's genuinely tried to do her best with this issue. But what Governor King has put his finger on is the central weakness of the deal. In the end, it's not a very good deal, and it doesn't really please anyone. And that's why I think it will struggle to pass the House of Commons. All right, Mr. Tony Blair, thank you so much. That was, of course, the former UK Prime Minister, Tony Blair. And, of course, we'll have special coverage on Bloomberg TV all week. Tom Keane will be joining me at Westminster from Monday. Right now, I want all of our global audience to know the distinctions of the market reaction. Last night, I was occupied at some fancy hotel relaxing. Pharaoh, <laughs> always on his Bloomberg 24-7. You saw the reaction, John. Yeah, I was logged in like I always am at that time of the evening, just to get a feel for the Asian session, see what's happening, yeah. get a feel for the news. And then the headline dropped. And the headline dropped from the Globe and Mail in Canada, that Canada has arrested the in Huawei Vancouver. CFO. And then I looked for the price action. It was early, okay, but it just wasn't there in FX. I didn't see it. Then about an hour later, you got US futures opening up and we had this big gap lower off the back of that. And then the price action started. But as the news slowly came out, we got to build a bit of a picture. When was the CFO detained? Well, December 1st, the same day that the President of the United States and President Xi Jinping were down in Buenos Aires, Argentina, negotiating a trade deal. So the big question now is what happens next? This yeah. was at the request of the United States. Does it go any further? And do tensions escalate with China? Tim Colpan joining us from Taipei. Tim, it took me by surprise. I'm surprised it stayed quiet for as long as it did. Where does this go next? Well, that's a fantastic question because, you know, if you look back to the ZTE case, which you mentioned, you know, they managed to uh, find ZTE guilty of breaking sanctions on selling stuff to Iran. ZTE was copped with a fine and told you have to fire some key staff who organized those dealings with Iran. ZTE said, all right, no problem, we'll do that. Uh, very sorry. Um, and we're very, you know, contrite about the whole thing. But not long later, they actually reneged on that deal, didn't fire the staff that was supposed to be fired and put in place all the things that the U.S. said they should do. 
And so the U.S. turned around and, and put a clamp on them being able to buy U.S. technology, you know, uh, um, components and so forth from, from U.S. companies. But again, instead of getting like a seven-year ban, the very transactional U.S. administration just said, okay, just, just pay a bigger fine uh, and we'll, we'll call it even. And so now that brings us to Huawei, right? I mean, what is, what is it the U.S. wants? Is it they just want yeah. more money out of Huawei? Is they just want to be able to say, give us a whole lot of money and we'll call it even? Do they have a bigger plan here? And that's the really the, the key question. You know, my, my caller today, I, I call them, um, you know, the dog that caught the car. They're barking and barking. Now they've got Huawei in their sights. What do they want? Well, Tim, not this not exclusive to the United States government either. BT in the UK are planning to remove equipment from its 4G network, Huawei equipment. They're planning to exclude Huawei from bidding for 5G contracts as well. It seems to me that this company is not just in the headlights of the US government, but in governments around the world, including the United Kingdom too. That's true. Now, there is two separate issues we're talking about here, and it's really important to get them clear. Yeah. One is breaking sanctions on dealings with Iran, selling equipment to Iran that the U.S. says you shouldn't do. The other is cybersecurity and the concerns about Huawei putting backdoors into their equipment, yeah. so on and so forth. They are separate issues. Now, you wrap them all together on the fact that, you know, Donald Trump and Xi Jinping are, are kind of duking it out, so to speak, over a trade war, and they do become part of the bigger issue, another source right. of tension. They are separate issues. What's the transparency of Huawei? I don't think I've got a handle on what <laughs> Alibaba. Well, I don't think I know what Alibaba is. Maybe I don't know what the sovereign wealth from in Singapore is. But within the Tim Culpin Asia meter, how how opaque is Huawei? Do you really know what it is? Well, I, look, frankly, we actually know more about them than uh, you might expect. They're not a publicly listed company, and it doesn't look like they'll ever be publicly listed. But you know what? On their website, they do put an annual report every year. Uh, and in that annual report, it's in English. Anybody can go there. Okay. IR Huawei. And you will see that, you know, uh, they brought in uh, $93 billion of revenue. Okay, but Tim, quickly, they, this, they is this is important. Within any book on China, there's a red phone in the corporate office. Is Huawei just a direct vassal of Beijing? Um, at least indirect, if not direct. They are very much a player and part of uh, Beijing's global strategy to influence the world and also to build its own technology. Absolutely. Hey, Tim, if you're a U.S. tech executive with a flight booked from JFK to Shanghai or Beijing today, <laughs> I do, thought the do, same do, thing. do you cancel the flight? I would I would ask my, uh, my, my staff, my secretaries, if I could just phone that one in. I, I don't think it's... That's the it's, first thing I, I mean, thought of. I laugh about it, but I mm. imagine a lot of people internally at these companies are thinking about yes. the same thing. We're, we're not making... You know, it, it's serious. Tim, for, it's always great to get your insight. And, and yeah. very, very important that you separate yeah. those two stories. The concerns over the equipment and the spy that could take place backdoor that are shared by a lot of people, yeah. and the concerns about the U.S. laws that prohibit the sales of certain and U.S. origin technology to places like Iran that the United States yeah. clearly believe, at least allege, that Huawei violates. I'll get Tim Culpin's essay out on Twitter as well with Bloomberg Opinion, just superb. of you honoring George Herbert Walker Bush, without question for me, this is the interview of the day. David Rubenstein has been modest in his financial success with the Carlyle Group. He's indeed been modest 
with his peer-to-peer television program and radio program for Bloomberg this year with the triumph of his interviews with Madame Lagarde, Jeffrey Bezos, uh, and others. But far more has been his quiet philanthropy to the nation. And David, you were at the National Cathedral yesterday, and I am most certain that the Bush family wanted you to be there because of the historic legacy you have codified in Washington. If I go to the, uh, the Library of Congress, and I was saying, David, to someone a few days ago, maybe David Rubenstein's Library of Congress, a wonderful resource page on George H.W. Bush. Add to that page right now your relationship with the 41st president. After President Bush lost the reelection effort in 1992, um, I was able to uh, convince Jim Baker, his good friend, his best friend, uh, to join our firm as an advisor and as a partner. And subsequently, uh, Jim Baker said that maybe uh, former President Bush would like to be an advisor as well. And so from about 1993 or 4, um, he was for about 10 years an advisor uh, to our firm. And what that really meant was that he would speak to groups of uh, you know, investors or, mm-hmm. or, or other individuals that we uh, had relationships with. And I traveled the world with him and with uh, Secretary Baker, the Middle East, the Far East, uh, throughout the United States, Europe. And I, I would say, with respect to President Bush, I never saw anybody who was so admired everywhere in the world. Uh, he was a person that I thought was the most decent person I ever met, and as I've said, uh, probably the nicest person I ever met in my life. Uh, he just was such a kind soul. He was always trying to do things to help other people, very loyal, as was pointed out oh. yesterday in many of the remarks. David, in the comments I've seen over the last few days, Mr. Baker comes up, and I think you can provide important perspective here, not only with your knowledge of history, your contribution to Ford's Theater and the museum across the street where the 16th president died, but there wasn't a team of rivals. There was Mr. Baker. To me, and I said this, and correct me if I'm wrong, David, there is no parallel in our history of this president and that one close friend. Well, I don't know of any situation where the president's closest friend was also his secretary of state. And what Jim Baker would always say is that nobody could get between him and President Bush, and that eliminated a lot of potential rivalries. In addition, Brent Scowcroft, who was the national security advisor, was also very close to uh, George Bush, and he recognized the relationship that uh, President Bush had with Jim Baker. So Jim Baker would say that if you're going to be a successful secretary of state, make sure you have a close relationship with the with the president. And there wasn't the kind of team of rivals that uh, you've often read about or you now see in some respects. So it was a different administration. Nothing was perfect. Of course, there's always mm-hmm. disagreements from time to time. But basically, it would work pretty smoothly. David Rubenstein with us of the Carlisle Group and, of course, his effort for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio peer-to-peer with us today on his thoughts on George H.W. Book. Mr. Rubenstein, what was it like at the National Cathedral yesterday? Well, uh, everybody who uh, knew President Bush seemed to be there, and um, there was obviously uh, a feeling that uh, a great man has passed away and that people wanted to respect him. I think that the press commentary is obviously focused on the presidents somewhat, but 
really so many people were there, several thousand, I guess, who had known President Bush, admired him, respected him, worked with him. And it was really a, mm-hmm. a joyful occasion, even though it was a sad situation. And you had your public service across the aisle with President Carter as well. I spoke with Prime Minister Blair this morning, and we were talking about this nostalgic idea of bringing, in this case, the Republican Party back to the middle ground or to the edge of it, much as labor has the same challenge in the United Kingdom. From from your perspective, David, do we have any chance of migrating our extremism back towards the middle? Well, hope springs eternal, and obviously a lot of the things that were said about George Bush yesterday might resonate with people who were there, but you know, it takes a while to bring about the kind of change we, we, we really uh, would like. I would say with respect to President Carter that uh, he's roughly the same age as President Bush, but mm-hmm. I think in reasonably good health he did suffer um, a brain uh, melanoma, but that has been, um, you know, uh, removed. Yeah. I hope to uh, do an interview of him tonight via Skype. Uh, I'm going to interview my former boss, Jimmy uh, uh, Stuart Eisenstadt, who was the domestic advisor to, to Jimmy Carter, and Jimmy Carter will come in through Skype, and I'll try to interview him. And um, I didn't, did, not, did not talk to him yesterday, but he seemed to be in reasonably good shape. Yeah, we'll look forward to seeing that uh, here at some point. Uh, uh, back to the 41st president as well. He will rest at, at uh, College Station. And, you know, I had uh, 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 a new immigrant say to the country, say to me yesterday, David Rubenstein, well, why isn't he being buried at Arlington Cemetery? And these are some of these decisions. And part of them, to do your contribution to the nation, right. is this new product, a presidential museum. I remember going to Kansas to see Ike's Museum when that was an oddity. They're now upon yes. us. Are they any good, David Rubenstein? I think they serve several purposes. The first one was really built uh, for FDR. It was a presidential library. Since then, the, they have morphed into a combination of library, museum, and foundation offices to perpetuate the work yeah. of the former president. And, um, for example, Barack Obama is now building one in Chicago. President George Herbert Walker Bush, when he left office, um, had an opportunity to build one at uh, Texas A&M, which is College Station. He had not had a really close relationship with that university before, but they worked together closely to build this, and now that's where he uh, and uh, Barbara Bush uh, mm-hmm. are going to be buried, and their, their young daughter, Robin, is there as well. David, one final question. Give us an update, and I love saying this, on your Library of Congress. What is the initiative you see this year, 2019, for our nation's library? The Library of Congress um, is really the library of the nation. It really it has the name Library of Congress, but that's a bit of a misnomer. Anybody can use it. And uh, we are working now with the Librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden, to make it more accessible to people to see the treasures of the Library of Congress. Congress and, and I and others are working to put together uh, parts of the Library of Congress where people can come in and see the greatest treasures the Library of Congress has more accessibly. In addition, working on a place where children can learn to read and, and practice reading in the, in, the, in the Library of Congress. And so that'll be an important part of what we're trying to build there. David Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Of course, his program, Peer to Peer, you could see that on Bloomberg Television, hear it on Bloomberg Radio uh, as well. His thoughts on the 41st president. Oil. It's beneath the ground, but it's sinking in value, down 2.5% right now on the NYMEX. Oil down 
as well as gasoline, heating oil, nat gas. And here to tell us why, of course, is our expert, Tina Davis. All things energy related for Bloomberg. Thank you for being here. So why? Why are the oil prices at $51 a barrel? Well, you're saying that like it's a bad thing. No, we've no. Got a I mean, if you're handle in front of oil, in front of WTI, which considering where we've been for the past few weeks, it's not the end of the world. And even today, um, the price sank 5% earlier today. So it's coming okay. back. And we've seen a little bit of stability. Right now, the market is still trying to parse out exactly what's going to come. From and you the don't know. You don't know right now what's happening in Vienna. It's, it's a mystery with At all the, the OPEC meeting, the jawboning, and all that. Mystery. Yeah, but there's a lot of discussion happening, right? So we a cut has been agreed to, and that's a great thing. But what is uncertain now is what the number is and who does what exactly. So we've heard, you know, anywhere from 500,000 barrels a day to a million five. Um, the Saudi oil minister, we talked to him this morning, and he said he was comfortable with a million barrels a day cut. The market did not like that. That's when you immediately saw the 5% drop. So They wanted what, more. They wanted more. Um, so what we're hearing now is it may be about a million from OPEC and then something additional from the plus part of OPEC, which is mostly Russia. Is there a penalty that you incur if you break your promise to OPEC if you're a member, or do you just leave? You well, just leave the party like Qatar, although that's natural gas, I know. But that is there a penalty? I mean, if you if you actually, you know, agree at the meeting to the cuts and then just go ahead and do whatever you want anyway. Compliance has always been a huge issue for this for OPEC as a group. And, you know, my favorite quote on this is the former Saudi oil minister said quite clearly, you know, the thing is we cheat. Um, you know, you make a promise, you set quotas, and then countries kind of do whatever they want to do. Hopefully they stick to those quotas. And certainly we saw a great deal of compliance with the last round. Um, but who knows? I mean, you also have, as part of the OPEC Plus, you have companies or countries rather like Mexico. I was Their output is Pemex. sinking anyway. And they need the so revenue. So they can agree to a cut. That's, that's no big of a deal because right. they're falling from natural re- for natural reasons anyway. Can I rip up the script? I'm doing this because I get cues from Pim Fox, who was brilliant to notice Looney at 134.21, weaker Canadian. It is original for you and for St. Stuart, uh, Stuart Wallace, our head of commodities in London, to see what's happened to Western Canada. Would you explain for our audience, coast to coast, and on Sirius XM Channel 119 across Canada, the symbolism for the nation that the Canadian oil experiment has just simply failed? Well, that is fascinating because at one point this year, you saw the differential between Western Canadian Select and WTI, the U.S. benchmark, fall to as much as $50 a barrel. Five zero. Five zero. So that's more than, as Pim pointed out, that's more than WTI is worth uh, at these rates. So you could buy Western Canadian Select for something, you know, a couple of loonies if you wanted to try to try to get it out of there. And that's, an, that's another place just like the Permian, which has sort of been a victim of its own success. You're choking on your own supply. You don't have enough infrastructure in the form of pipelines, trains, whatever, to bring all that crude to market. So you see the price of your commodity drop to almost nothing. And then we've seen the, the uh, Alberta government respond now, right, where they've said, we're doing these production cuts across the board for pricing. Yeah. Totally unprecedented. But they had been asked by the producers there, please do something. And there was a few producers who obviously were benefiting from low feedstock prices for refineries, so they kind of got some benefit out of that low oil price. But basically, the industry was begging the government to intervene, which is you know, a unique place in a nation like Canada where you don't think is of a lot of resource nationalism. As our managing editor for Americas, 
you have larger purview. Tell us anything about natural gas and what is going on there, because I was interested that Qatar announced that it wants to leave OPEC because it wants to further develop and expand its natural gas business. Does it have an outlet? Because it's the same kind of situation you were just describing in the Permian. You have a lot of fossil fuel, but how do you get it to the people in the countries that are going to use it? Well, with Qatar, I mean, look, their, their natural gas business is not a new business, right? Right. So... You take what they say with a slight grain of salt about this being a, a shift in focus. Um, this is obviously a nation that has had considerable differences, we'll put it that way, with Saudi Arabia, which is sort of the de facto leader of OPEC. Um, but yeah, if you're talking about the LNG business, the liquefied natural gas business, this is something that the U.S. is ramping up exports of. We've seen the third terminal that's just recently started commercial production uh, down in Texas. So we're also seeing huge LNG come out of Australia. So if you're Qatar, if you're the nation who's the you know acknowledged number one exporter of gas, you're seeing these upstarts come in and you don't necessarily want to have the same ramifications that we've seen with OPEC where they sort of ignored the shale boom until they had to come and try to make peace with the shale producers in an attempt to save their market share. Does there, uh, does there in your mind uh, uh, sort of create does, well, okay, let me just mention that the Dow uh, Jones Industrial Average is down more than 500 points, and the DAX in Germany uh, is set to enter a bear market. It is down a little bit more than 3%. Uh, yeah, you know, just as, as we finish up with Tina here, I would just say the correlations are remarkable, and the number one thing to look at, folks, well, two things. Yen, 112.32, that pro metric is still strong yen and finding ever stronger yen strength towards 111. And the 10-year yield has a life of its own. Higher note price, lower yield, 2.8452 on the 10-year yield. Why don't you, Tina, this has been so good. What are you doing tomorrow at 5, 10 a.m.? You want to come in and talk uh, hydrocarbons with us? Stuart Wallace will be with us. We can do it. Are you going to have a nice warm breakfast, breakfast yeah. for me? Yeah, well, thank yeah. you. Ask no, no, breakfast. no. Warm breakfasts are optional here. cold breakfast. Tom makes yeah. great eggs. Yeah. You know, we, we have the surveillance kitchen where we... Yeah, Tina Davis, thank you so much. We've got to leave too early right here with the markets on the move and do a complete data check for people. Ms. Davis running all of our hydrocarbon coverage across the Americas. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.